as my sons and I were driving back and forth um, to the men's rally this weekend, uh, we were listening to a podcast about the Salem witch trials. It's probably a weird thing that you wouldn't normally do, but I like history, and it's called Infamous America, and it was just talking about different historical accounts of infamous things that happen in American culture. And as interesting and crazy as kind of that, that part of history was, and there's some pretty fantastic things that happened and things that most people would look at and say skeptically, I, you know, they, they were probably just crazy Puritans that were going after people and stuff like that. There was at points in that history as they were recounting some events that my sons and I were talking about the fact that there seemed to be very real instances where the demonic was happening, and I was reminded of something that Pastor Josh brought out and reminded us from, from Scripture last week in Daniel 10, and that is that we are in a spiritual battle, that there is spiritual warfare going on that impacts us in the physical here. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are in a spiritual battle, and I think we need to make sure that we keep that in mind as we move into Daniel chapter 11, because really Daniel chapter 10 moves right into Daniel chapter 11, and it's all the same event. And so as, as Daniel is waiting to hear from the Lord, that, re, that answer from the Lord has been delayed, and we learned about that last week. And Pastor Josh had a couple points that I just want to remind us of when we realize that we are in a spiritual battle. We were reminded last week that we fight with God's strength and that we are to fight God's way. And, um, and I think that it's important that we don't forget that as we move into this particular passage of Scripture. And um, as we look at Daniel 11, and we won't look at all of Daniel 11 today, but we'll look at the majority of it. It starts off in Daniel chapter 11, verse one, verses 1 and 2, that it's really connected to the end of Daniel chapter 10, and it's Gabriel talking to Daniel, and then he's about to tell Daniel of some events that are going to be coming in the future. And I just want to remind us of how the end of Daniel chapter 10 goes. It says this, he says, and he said, Gabriel, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. There's the, the spiritual warfare that's going on. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you that uh, what is recorded in the book of truth, no one has come, um, excuse me, no one has the courage to support me against those princes except for Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him, and now I tell you the truth. So Gabriel is just reminding us at the very beginning of chapter 11, and really connecting to, to, to chapter 10, that there is spiritual warfare going on. And that Gabriel came to share this prophecy with Daniel for Daniel to write it down for us to read and to understand. And so we're going to look at Daniel chapter 11. We're really just going to focus on uh, verses 2 to 36. Next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up with uh, 1136 to the end of, of uh, chapter 12. Chapter 11, at least in the verses that we're going to focus on, are uh, really about events that were in Daniel's future, but that were in our past. 
And we're not going to spend a long time on them. I was talking to uh, Josh Fillmore. He was here visiting in the first service, and he was joking around with, he knows me uh, well, and he was kind of giving me a hard time about, he said, I love what you said in the first, in the service. He said, you said, if you know me, you know, Pastor Dave, I, I, I like history, but we're not going to spend any time on really the history of it today. So let me tell you some history. So I'll try not to do it that way this time. I am going to show, share a little bit of the historical aspects of Daniel 11, but I really want us to focus on how do we, what do we do with all this more than anything else. So let me just, as quickly as I can, kind of give you the ins and outs of it. Right off the bat, in Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, um, we start getting into the prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel to write down. These are things that we've already talked about, actually. We've already learned about this. This has already been shared and recorded in Daniel chapter 8. And so we won't hash it all out again in length. But I do want us to see that there's some more detail that's put on some of these prophetic statements through Daniel chapter 11. And we can trace back and we can see it. We can see it almost to the letter that God has already fulfilled these things. It says, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he has established this, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will be, it will, excuse me, it will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because the, his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. We can actually look back in history and see how this has already been fulfilled. Um, I have a timeline. I don't know if we'll be able to get it up, but it just kind of breaks it down. You might not be able to see it all that well, but I'd like to just kind of share it with you so that you understand what is being said to Daniel right off the bat. What we discover right off is that three more kings will arise in Persia. We know for sure who the kings were. After Cyrus, Cambyses came into power. He ruled for a particular period of time. After he was done ruling and reigning, a guy named uh, Galmata, who was an uh, imposter, came and he kind of weaseled his way in and took power, but he was only there for a very short period of time, but he was king number two. And then all of a sudden, Darius the Great comes up and he assassinates Galmata and takes over again in Persia and rules in Persia as the third king. And then the fourth king comes into power. That's Xerxes I. That's Esther's husband, so if you want to know a little bit more about some of the dynamics there, just read the book of Esther. And Xerxes I was a great and mighty king. Under his reign, Persia reached the pinnacle of its power. And as most earthly rulers do, they get arrogant. And they think that they um, can accomplish anything that they put their minds to. And they think that they're the best and, and the strongest. And so, of course, Xerxes I decides in all his wisdom and might to invade Greece and if you looked in the history books, you would discover that Xerxes I lost to the Greek army at the Battle of Salmis. And from then on out, it was ultimately leading to the destruction of the Persian Empire and the institution of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. In the verses that we actually read, we've already learned, though, that when Alexander the Great does gain his power and establish his kingdom, he dies. 
And as the passage in Daniel actually says, it says, as soon as he has established his vast kingdom, excuse me, um, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds, but not to his descendants. History tells us that when Alexander the Great died, all of his descendants, his wives, his children, and even his distant relatives were all murdered, and not one of them took over the empire that he had established. And ended up getting divided up among his generals, and then ultimately two kings really took precedence. And so if we were going to work through Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 through 15, we would discover, excuse me, 5 through 20, we would discover that these first 15 verses cover the Seleucid kings over a period of 150 years. I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but I do want us to see that when Daniel says that these things will take place, I want you to see how accurate God's prophecy is to Daniel. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 8 for a minute. I'll start in verse 5, though. It says, The king of the south, so one of the Seleucid kings, will grow in power, but one of his commanders will grow in more power and will rule the kingdom greater than his. And after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her in those, during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one of her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. He will even take their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. Ian Duguid in his commentary talks about these verses and this is what he says. These predictions are full, excuse me, are fulfilled to the letter. Around 250 BC, Ptolemy II, king of the south, attempted to make a peace with Antiochus II, king of the north, by sending his daughter Bernice to marry him. The plan was that Antiochus would divorce his first wife, Laodice, and disinherit her sons. Laodice discovered the plot, however, and she had Antiochus and Bernice poisoned along with their young son. In the same year, Bernice's father died in Egypt. He was succeeded by Bernice's brother, someone from her own family, who then invaded the Seleucid kingdom and conquered its capital, Antioch, exactly as Daniel 11 predicted. We see these events transpire in verses 5 to 20. From verses 21 to 36, we also see events transpire that have already been accomplished in history by a king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've already talked about this. We've already talked about this man. This man was a nasty individual, a wicked man who, in coming into power, oppressed the children of Israel. 
during the time between the book of Malachi and Christ's coming, those silent years. Antiochus is described as the events, the abomination of desolation happen in that sense, in the sense that he sacrifices a swine on the altar at the temple before God, something that was a desecration to the temple. And in those verses, we see Daniel receive prophetic statements about what Antiochus is going to do. And what we look back on history and see what he's already done. Now the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, I believe, talk about future events for us. And so we're going to focus on those next week. We're going to just look at what was shared in this particular passage for us this morning, events that have already transpired And we discover that exactly what God said to Daniel was going to happen did happen. And really for us, I'd rather focus less on kind of that history part, and we'll leave that behind, but ask ourselves the question, what do we do with this? Like, it's great to know this information. It's great to hear that this prophecy was given to Daniel and that we can look back in history and look, all these things are accomplished. But what do we do with that? What do we do when we understand that? There's four things that I think that we can take from this and apply to our lives. Number one, first thing that I want us to focus on is that this prophecy that was given to Daniel and recorded here in Daniel 11 for us that we can look back and see was accomplished to the letter. should challenge us, should teach us to trust our sovereign, almighty God and His Word. What does this prophecy do for us? Well, it tells us that what God says He's going to do, He's going to do, and when He says it, it's true. I think about the test for prophets that God gave to the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. See, Daniel was a prophet of God, and he was given a prophetic word. But see, the children of Israel, when prophets came along, they were instructed on how it is that they were supposed to respond to somebody who says, hey, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 and following, it says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded to him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. Pretty strict criteria, wouldn't you say? That doesn't really mince around. If somebody's going to come and say, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord, thus says the Lord, they're, they're, they're saying something pretty substantial. And if it's not so... The children of Israel were supposed to see that this person is executed. But of course, the question that should come to mind is, well, how do we know if the person's a prophet from God then? It's great that God actually assumed that they were going to ask this question. Because in verse 21, he says this, You may ask yourself, how can we recognize a message that the Lord has not spoken? 
And then he says, when a prophet speaks in the, name, the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. One of the things that we can see when it comes to if this person is a prophet from the Lord and if this is a prophetic word that God has given to this particular prophet, we can see that it is going to be concrete and it's going to be specific and it's going to be verifiable. You're going to be able to tell if, in fact, it's a word from the Lord, if it comes true or not. If it comes true, it's from the Lord. And Daniel said, these are the events that are going to happen, and they happen because God gave him that prophetic message, and what God says, God brings about. What God says is true. And we can trust in our sovereign, almighty God and his word. I highlighted some statements that you can see tracing through the book of uh, Daniel in chapter 11 that I think really emphasize the fact that this is God and God's word and what God is saying is going to take place because God has appointed it to take place. At the end of verse 24, after it says, During a time of peace he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers. He will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. In the middle of verse 27, you see the phrase, at the appointed time. At the beginning of verse 29, you see the phrase, at the appointed time. At the end of verse 35, you see the phrase, at the appointed time. Who's appointed time? Who's the one appointing the time? God is. God's allowing it to happen when God wants it to happen. When God lays it out, he's going to accomplish his purposes. God is true. His word is true. What he says, he will do. I think that that's important because God, in his word, lays out promises for us. God, time and time again, shares with his people things that he's going to accomplish, and in fact, he accomplishes them, whether that's in the immediate future or the distant future. I think it's important that we focus on some of these things that God has shared with us, and as we've been thinking about and talking about the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. It's important for us in the heat of it oftentimes to be reminded of what God promises. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, Paul says this, and I think that this is absolutely fantastic to be reminded of for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger or sword. As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things 
thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How often do we need to be reminded of that? For those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, sometimes we need to be reminded that God loves us and that nobody's going to separate us from that love. There may be somebody here this morning who has never experienced the grace of God in their life. They, they, they don't realize how much Christ loves them. You might be here this morning and you would say, look, I've just been invited by a friend. I'm just visiting or I'm just checking this church out or I'm kind of curious about Christianity, so I'm here. And you can honestly say, look, I don't have a relationship with God. I don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm not sure what that's even all about. It's no coincidence that you're here. God's sovereignty and His omniscience, He knew that you were going to be here today. His desire for you is to understand that He loves you. That He sent His only Son to die for you. That He longs for you to enter into a close, vibrant, personal relationship with Him. To live out in that relationship with Him all the days of your life. To grow closer and closer with Him every single day. And that starts by placing your faith and trust in Christ to save you from your sin. See, Scripture tells us that before we trust Christ as Savior, we're already condemned because we're sinful people. John 3, 16, which is a very popular verse. We hear this all the time, but I'm going to read the verses that follow. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his, world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light came into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed, but anyone who lives by the, light, by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, right now you're in sin before God. Your sin separates you from a holy God, but he loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to save you from all of your sin. Past, present, future. If you would yield your life to Christ, trust Him as your Savior, allow Him to be the, the Lord of your life, uh, you're saved. You will be saved. I mean, challenge you today to put your faith and trust in Christ. Number two, though. Number two, what can we do with this? Well, we can take a stand and we can stand firm. We are challenged, we are commanded by God to take a stand as followers of Jesus Christ and stand firm. What are we thinking about that? Well, I got thinking of a, a, of a question that, that Pastor Josh asked in his message to us last week, and I wanted to ask this question again, and I wanted to flesh it out a little bit. I had a conversation with somebody after the first service, and I really didn't do a great job at fleshing it out. I hope to do a little better job in this service. The question was, this past week, have you been an in-the-trenches Christian or a hot tub Christian? Now, 
not talking about hot tubs being bad. I mean, if you have a hot tub, I'm sure that, you know, it's great that you enjoy it. Um, and you should. I'm not a hot tub guy myself, but but really the idea is, uh, am I a Christian that's living out my faith in a particular way? Or am I kind of an apathetic Christian where I'm just kind of, you know, sitting back and I'm really just kind of looking after myself and my own comforts and, 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 and just kind of going about the motions? And I got thinking about taking a stand. If we're, if we're going to be in the trenches, Christians, then we need to take a stand for Christ and we need to stand firm. But there's some things about that that I wanted us to really think through for a minute. What does it mean to be an in-the-trenches Christian? A friend of mine, we're talking in between services, and I really appreciated the things that he was talking with me about. In-the-trenches Christian looks like someone who is willing to get dirty willing to do the hard things, willing to walk with people through situations of their life that are absolutely devastating. When you've got someone whose marriage is falling apart, are you a Christian that's willing to be right there with them to help them, be a shoulder to cry and to be a listening ear, but to be a Christian where you would be able to speak the truth of, of God's Word into their life? Maybe there's some things that are going on in that marriage. Maybe your, your friend is, is, is not responding biblically in that, in that marriage relationship, and you as a friend in a loving and gentle way can come alongside them and say, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe you need to take a step back and look at the Word of God and what God's Word says on being a godly wife or a godly husband. Maybe you've, you're walking alongside of someone who has just found out that they've got a devastating illness that will likely take their life. And instead of cowering away and saying, well, I'm not sure what to say in that situation, you're willing to bear those burdens with that other believer, that, that friend. That you're willing to pray for them. You're willing to drive them to the hospital. You're willing to sit with them when they're extremely sick. You're willing to pray for them. You're willing to read Scripture with them. You're willing to walk with them in the midst of that. I don't know. It could be a variety of different ways in which that plays out, but I got thinking about serving God, and sometimes we serve at our convenience, but sometimes we don't always necessarily show up when we ought to because we don't feel like it. Think of those ministries that are tiring that we are a part of, but how sometimes in the run of a year we're just like, well, you know what, you know, there's some snow flurries outside, and it's dark and cold, and I got a fire going, and oh, they have another, they they have plenty of Awana leaders. I don't really need to show up tonight. Or you know what, I've had a really rotten day, and I've had some things in my own life that are just going awry, and I I don't think I should really be there, not in the right headspace. But instead, you're like, no, this is what God's called me to do. This is what I committed to serve the Lord in, and I'm going to be there. Even though things are falling apart for me, I'm going to be there to serve God with other people. I look at verses 32 and 33, and I think it says, Those who knew their God will be strong, and they will take action. 
But I think about the fact that when we take a stand and we stand firm, sometimes we're the only one that does it. Or sometimes we might have a bunch of people rally around, but you know what? They're not sincere people. Think about what it says after. It says, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered. That's it's not one you want to hear. If I'm going to stand up and take a stand for the Lord, the last thing I want to hear is that I might actually fall by the sword because of that. Or I might... I might be taken captive because of that. Also says in verse 34, when they fall, they will be helped up by some, some, but many others will join them in sincerely. There may be times that when we're in the trenches and we're serving the Lord the way that God wants us to, there may be others that join, but they're not there for the right reasons. And sometimes that can discourage us when we find out that they're not there for the right reasons. Or their influence could really get us off track. We need to make sure that we're serving God for the right reasons, the way that God's calling us to. I got thinking of Paul when he was in prison and he's writing to Timothy at the end of 2 Timothy and he says, you know, come soon because Demas has abandoned me to follow after the world. See, Paul knows what it was like to be in the trenches. He knew what it was like to take a stand and to stand firm no matter what the cost He was writing that letter from prison. He wasn't sure what his future was going to look like. And he even had people that just left him. They weren't committed to the Lord the way that he was committed to the Lord. And they abandoned him. It broke his heart. It crushed him. Sometimes being in the trenches is, well, I would say most of the time being in the trenches is difficult. But that's what God's calling us to do as Christians is to serve him in the trenches, to take a stand and to stand firm. Verse 33, it says, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many. I think it's important when we focus on God because he is true and right and perfect and just. And his word is true and as we spend time in God's Word and let God shape us with His Word and we meditate on it, which is what we should be doing as Christians. When we get into God's Word, we should look at it with, this is God's Word, it's true. God's going to use this to work in my life. He's going to make me more like Christ. He's going to point out things that I need to correct in my life, sin that I need to confess, areas where I need to step up as a, as a man or as a husband or as a follower of Jesus as a servant of Christ. But you know what? It's necessary that we are willing to teach other people as God is teaching us from his word. I love what 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts sanctify Christ the Lord as holy and be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And we use that for apologetics and all that sort of stuff, you know. When... The reality of it is is that if we call ourselves a Christian, if we have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we need to be ready at any moment to tell people about what Christ has done in my life and what Christ can do in their life. Why is it that I have this hope? Why is it that I've given my life to Christ? Oh, let me tell you. I'd love to tell you. Be ready all the time. And then lastly, number four, pray in the face of uncertainty and attack from the knowing, excuse me, 
that we are in a, phys- that we are in a spiritual battle. We are going to be attacked by the enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this, Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. But Peter keeps on going. He says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We have an enemy, the devil, and he is looking to attack, and we need to resist him. I want to finish off with passages familiar to so many of us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 20 through, or verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. We are in a spiritual battle. And it's so easy for us as Christians to forget that and to stop being attentive and alert and to get kind of settled and apathetic and a little bit lazy sometimes. And I've been trying to really encourage myself and challenge myself to just always have my mind ready for action, knowing that the enemy is going to try to attack any way that he can, that I have a sinful flesh that's always warring against what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. I really can't settle back and relax. We're reminded that we're in a spiritual battle where there's spiritual warfare going on. He says, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you can resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Really truth ought to center, be the center of our lives it ought to anchor the armor. Right? The idea is that the belt for the Roman soldier was what really held those key aspects of their armor together. We need to have the truth around our waists like a belt. Righteousness like armor on your chest. Your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Pray for me, Paul says, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak as I should. I don't know about you, but Scripture makes it abundantly clear here that Paul knows exactly what faithfulness in adversity is. He knows what adversity is. He's asking for prayer in the midst of adversity. He's in chains. He's in prison. He's going to face the emperor. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he wants to be prayed for because even as an apostle that we tend to look at and say, wow, this guy's like a super apostle. He's, he's a godly man, but he's just a man seeking to serve God. And he knew his weaknesses. He's saying, 
Christians, can you please pray for me? I want to be bold in preaching the gospel when I get every opportunity. We need to be praying for one another, knowing that we're in a spiritual battle. Let's put on that full armor of God each and every day. Be ready for the battle that's going to come. Be willing to stand in the trenches and live the way that God wants us to, even though it's going to be difficult, even though it's going to be dirty, even though it's going to be hurtful, it's going to be ugly. There are going to be people that desert us. There are going to be people that join us for all the wrong reasons. Are we willing to be in the trenches, Christians, the way that God has called us to? I encourage you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, after the service, we would love to talk to you. Just talk to any one of us as pastors. We would love to talk to you about how you can trust Christ as your Savior and have that vibrant relationship with God. Thank you.